Section 16 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Modern Fiction. In making any survey, even the freest and loosest of modern fiction, it is difficult not to take it for granted that the modern practice of the art is somehow an improvement upon the old. With their simple tools and primitive materials, it might be said, Fielding did well, and Jane Austen even better, but compare their opportunities with ours. Their masterpieces certainly have a strange air of simplicity. And yet, the analogy between literature and the process, to choose an example of making motor cars, scarcely holds good beyond the first glance. It is doubtful whether in the course of the centuries, though we have learnt much about making machines, we have learnt anything about making literature. We do not come to write better. All that we can be said to do is to keep moving, now a little in this direction, now in that, but with a circular tendency should the whole course of the track be viewed from a sufficiently lofty pinnacle. It need scarcely be said that we make no claim to stand, even momentarily, upon that vantage ground. On the flat, in the crowd, half blind with dust, we look back with envy to those happier warriors, whose battle is won and whose achievements wear so serene an air of accomplishment that we can scarcely refrain from whispering that the fight was not so fierce for them as for us it is for the historian of literature to decide for him to say if we are now beginning or ending or standing in the middle of a great period of prose fiction for down in the plain little is visible we only know that certain gratitudes and hostilities inspire us that certain paths seem to lead to fertile land others to the dust and the desert, and of this perhaps it may be worth while to attempt some account. Our quarrel, then, is not with the classics, and if we speak of quarrelling with Mr. Wells, Mr. Bennett, and Mr. Galsworthy, it is partly that by the mere fact of their existence in the flesh their work has a living, breathing, everyday imperfection which bids us take what liberties with it we choose. But it is also true that, while we thank them for a thousand gifts, we reserve our unconditional gratitude for mr hardy for mr conrad and in a much lesser degree for the mr hudson of the purple land green mansions and far away and long ago mr wells mr bennett and mr galsworthy have excited so many hopes and disappointed them so persistently that our gratitude largely takes the form of thanking them for having shown us what they might have done but have not done what we certainly could not do but as certainly, perhaps, do not wish to do. No single phrase will sum up the charge or grievance which we have to bring against a mass of work so large in its volume and embodying so many qualities, both admirable and the reverse. If we tried to formulate our meaning in one word, we should say that these three writers are materialists. It is because they are concerned not with the spirit, but with the body, that they have disappointed us and left us with the feeling that the sooner English fiction turns its back upon them as politely as may be, and marches, if only into the desert, the better for its soul. Naturally, no single word reaches the center of three separate targets. In the case of Mr. Wells, it falls notably wide of the mark, and yet even with him it indicates to our thinking the fatal alloy in his genius, the great clod of clay that has got itself mixed up with the purity of his inspiration but mr bennett is perhaps the worst culprit of the three inasmuch as he is by far the best workman 
he can make a book so well constructed and solid in its craftsmanship that it is difficult for the most exacting of critics to see through what chink or crevice decay can creep in there is not so much as a draught between the frames of the windows or a crack in the boards and yet if life should refuse to live there that is a risk which the creator of the old wives tale george cannon edward clayhanger and the hosts of other figures may well claim to have surmounted his characters live abundantly even unexpectedly but it remains to ask how do they live and what do they live for more and more they seem to us deserting even the well-built villa in the five towns to spend their time in some softly padded first-class railway carriage pressing bells and buttons innumerable and the destiny to which they travel so luxuriously becomes more and more unquestionably an eternity of bliss spent in the very best hotel in brighton it can scarcely be said of mr wells that he is a materialist in the sense that he takes too much delight in the solidity of his fabric his mind is too generous in its sympathies to allow him to spend much time in making things shipshape and substantial he is a materialist from sheer goodness of heart taking upon his shoulders the work that ought to have been discharged by government officials and in the plethora of his ideas and facts scarcely having leisure to realize or forgetting to think important the crudity and coarseness of his human beings yet what more damaging criticism can there be both of his earth and of his heaven than that they are to be inhabited here and hereafter by his jones and his peters does not the inferiority of their natures tarnish whatever institutions and ideals may be provided for them by the generosity of their creator nor profoundly though we respect the integrity and humanity of mr galsworthy shall we find what we seek in his pages if we fasten then one label on all these books on which is one word materialists we mean by it that they write of unimportant things that they spend immense skill and immense industry making the trivial and the transitory appear the true and the enduring we have to admit that we are exacting and further that we find it difficult to justify our discontent by explaining what it is that we exact we frame our question differently at different times but it reappears most persistently as we drop the finished novel on the crest of a sigh is it worth while what is the point of it all can it be that owing to one of those little deviations which the human spirit seems to make from time to time mr bennett has come down with his magnificent apparatus for catching life just an inch or two on the wrong side life escapes and perhaps without life nothing else is worth while it is a confession of vagueness to have to make use of such a figure as this but we scarcely better the matter by speaking as critics are prone to do of reality admitting the vagueness which affects all criticism of novels let us hazard the opinion that for us at this moment the form of fiction most in vogue more often misses than secures the thing we seek whether we call it life or spirit truth or reality this the essential thing has moved off or on and refuses to be contained any longer in such ill-fitting vestments as we provide nevertheless we go on perseveringly conscientiously constructing our two and thirty chapters after a design which more and more ceases to resemble the vision in our minds so much of the enormous labor of proving the solidity the likeness to life of the story is not merely labor thrown away but labor misplaced to the extent of obscuring and blotting out the light of the conception the writer seems constrained not by his own free will but by some powerful and unscrupulous tyrant who has him in thrall to provide a plot to provide comedy tragedy love 
interest, and an air of probability embalming the whole so impeccable that if all his figures were to come to life, they would find themselves dressed down to the last button of their coats in the fashion of the hour. The tyrant is obeyed, the novel is done to a turn, but sometimes, more and more often as time goes by, we suspect a momentary doubt, a spasm of rebellion, as the pages fill themselves in the customary way. Is life like this? Must novels be like this? Look within, and life, it seems, is very far from being like this. Examine for a moment an ordinary mind on an ordinary day. The mind receives a myriad impressions, trivial, fantastic, evanescent, or engraved with the sharpness of steel. From all sides they come, an incessant shower of innumerable atoms, and as they fall, as they shape themselves into the life of Monday or Tuesday, the accent falls differently from of old. The moment of importance came not here, but there, so that if a writer were a free man, and not a slave, if he could write what he chose, not what he must, if he could base his work upon his own feeling, and not upon convention, there would be no plot, no comedy, no tragedy, no love interest, or catastrophe in the accepted style, and perhaps not a single button sewn on as the Bond Street tailors would have it. Life is not a series of gig lamps symmetrically arranged, but a luminous halo, a semi-transparent envelope surrounding us from the beginning of consciousness to the end. Is it not the task of the novelist to convey this varying, this unknown and uncircumscribed spirit, whatever aberration or complexity it may display, with as little mixture of the alien and external as possible? We are not pleading merely for courage and sincerity. We are suggesting that the proper stuff of fiction is a little other than custom would have us believe it. It is, at any rate, in some such fashion as this that we seek to define the quality which distinguishes the work of several young writers, among whom Mr. James Joyce is the most notable, from that of their predecessors. They attempt to come closer to life, and to preserve more sincerely and exactly what interests and moves them, even if to do so they must discard most of the conventions which are commonly observed by the novelist. Let us record the atoms as they fall upon the mind in the order in which they fall. Let us trace the pattern, however disconnected and incoherent in appearance, which each sight or incident scores upon the consciousness. Let us not take it for granted that life exists more fully in what is commonly thought big than in what is commonly thought small. Anyone who has read The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, or what promises to be a far more interesting work, Ulysses, now appearing in the Little Review, will have hazarded some theory of this nature as to Mr. Joyce's intention. On our part, with such a fragment before us, it is hazarded rather than affirmed. But whatever the intention of the whole, there can be no question but that it is of the utmost sincerity, and that the result, difficult or unpleasant as we may judge it, is undeniably important. In contrast with those whom we have called materialists, Mr. Joyce is spiritual. He is concerned at all costs to reveal the flickerings of that innermost flame which flashes its messages through the brain, and in order to preserve it he disregards with complete courage whatever seems to him adventitious, whether it be probability or coherence or any other of these signposts which for generations have served to support the imagination of a reader when called upon to imagine what he can neither touch nor see. The scene in the cemetery, for instance, with its brilliancy, its sordidity, its incoherence, its sudden, lightening flashes of significance, 
does undoubtedly come so close to the quick of the mind that on a first reading at any rate it is difficult not to acclaim a masterpiece if we want life itself here surely we have it indeed we find ourselves fumbling rather awkwardly if we try to say what else we wish and for what reason a work of such originality yet fails to compare for we must take high examples with youth or the mayor of casterbridge it fails because of the comparative poverty of the writer's mind we might say simply and have done with it but it is possible to press a little further and wonder whether we may not refer our sense of being in a bright yet narrow room confined and shut in rather than enlarged and set free to some limitation imposed by the method as well as by the mind is it the method that inhibits the creative power is it due to the method that we feel neither jovial nor magnanimous but centered in a self which in spite of its tremor of susceptibility never embraces or creates what is outside itself and beyond does the emphasis laid perhaps didactically upon indecency contribute to the effect of something angular and isolated or is it merely that in any effort of such originality it is much easier for contemporaries especially to feel what it lacks than to name what it gives in any case it is a mistake to stand outside examining methods any method is right every method is right that expresses what we wish to express if we are writers that brings us closer to the novelist's intention if we are readers this method has the merit of bringing us closer to what we were prepared to call life itself did not the reading of ulysses suggest how much of life is excluded or ignored and did it not come with a shock to open tristram shandy or even pendennis and be by them convinced that there are not only other aspects of life but more important ones into the bargain however this may be the problem before the novelist at present as we suppose it to have been in the past is to contrive means of being free to set down what he chooses he has to have the courage to say that what interests him is no longer this but that out of that alone must he construct his work for the moderns that the point of interest lies very likely in the dark places of psychology at once therefore the accent falls a little differently the emphasis is upon something hitherto ignored at once a different outline of form becomes necessary difficult for us to grasp incomprehensible to our predecessors no one but a modern perhaps no one but a russian would have felt the interest of the situation which chekhov has made into the short story which he calls gusev some russian soldiers lie ill on board a ship which is taking them back to russia we are given a few scraps of their talk and some of their thoughts then one of them dies and is carried away the talk goes on among the others for a time until gusev himself dies and looking like a carrot or a radish is thrown overboard the emphasis is laid upon such unexpected places that at first it seems as if there were no emphasis at all and then as the eyes accustom themselves to twilight and discern the shapes of things in a room we see how complete the story is how profound and how truly in obedience to his vision chekhov has chosen this that and the other and placed them together to compose something new but it is impossible to say this is comic or that is tragic nor are we certain since short stories we have been taught should be brief and conclusive whether this which is vague and inconclusive should be called a short story at all the most elementary remarks upon modern english fiction can hardly avoid some mention of the russian influence 
and if the Russians are mentioned, one runs the risk of feeling that to write of any fiction, save theirs, is waste of time. If we want understanding of the soul and heart, where else shall we find it, of comparable profundity? If we are sick of our own materialism, the least considerable of their novelists has by right of birth a natural reverence for the human spirit. Quote, Learn to make yourself akin to people, but let this sympathy be not with the mind, for it is easy with the mind, but with the heart, with love towards them. Unquote. In every great Russian writer we seem to discern the features of a saint. If sympathy for the sufferings of others, love towards them, endeavor to reach some goal worthy of the most exacting demands of the spirit constitute saintliness. It is the saint in them which confounds us with a feeling of our own irreligious triviality, and turns so many of our famous novels to tinsel and trickery. The conclusions of the Russian mind, thus comprehensive and compassionate, are inevitably, perhaps, of the utmost sadness. More accurately, indeed, we might speak of the inconclusiveness of the Russian mind. It is the sense that there is no answer, that if honestly examined, life presents question after question, which must be left to sound on and on after the story is over, in hopeless interrogation that fills us with a deep, and finally, it may be with a resentful, despair. They are right, perhaps. Unquestionably, they see further than we do, and without our gross impediments of vision. But perhaps we see something that escapes them. Or why should this voice of protest mix itself with our gloom? The voice of protest is the voice of another, and an ancient civilization, which seems to have bred in us the instinct to enjoy and fight, rather than to suffer and understand. English fiction from Stern to Meredith bears witness to our natural delight in humor and comedy, in the beauty of earth, in the activities of the intellect, and in the splendor of the body. But any deductions that we may draw from the comparison of two fictions so immeasurably far apart are futile, save indeed as they flood us with a view of the infinite possibilities of the art, and remind us that there is no limit to the horizon, and that nothing, no method, no experiment, even of the wildest, is forbidden, but only falsity and pretense. The proper stuff of fiction does not exist. Everything is the proper stuff of fiction. Every feeling, every thought, every quality of brain and spirit is drawn upon. No perception comes amiss. And if we can imagine the art of fiction come alive and standing in our midst, she would undoubtedly bid us break her and bully her, as well as honor and love her, for so her youth is renewed and her sovereignty assured. End of section 16